0: The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, hello guys. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. I hope you're having a great start to the week. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. And, and I'm just uh, finishing up my last 10 days here in Costa Rica. So i uh, just trying to make the most of the good life here before I, uh, before I move on and then heading to LA, Montreal, New York, and then eventually ending up in Berlin in a few weeks' time. So uh, super excited about that. Thanks for tuning in. As always, it's great to have your support. Thank you for your comments on Kyle's episode last week about the Love Lab. I really enjoyed that conversation with Kyle. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a deep dive into relationships from a scientific point of view. Uh, Kyle works in a place called the Love Lab. And yeah, he has some great insights. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. Uh, We're moving into a new theme uh, for this month. So last month's theme was love and connection. And these are all the uh, elements that create an extraordinary life or what I believe create an extraordinary life. So deep sense of love and connection. And this month, we move into the next element, which is adventure and excitement. So, you know, my life just on a year has been traveling the world full time, going from country to country and just uh, using adventure as a way to like keep me excited And find more uh, fun in my day-to-day life. So that's what I want to encourage you guys to do is is find more excitement in your daily life and use adventure to do that. So I'm going to be interviewing a whole bunch of people over the next month that uh, know how to do that better than I do. And we'll be diving into that topic pretty deeply. My guest today is Akshay Ninavanti, and I'd like to welcome Akshay to the show. Akshay, Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Nathan. Pleasure to be
0: here. Yeah, great to have you here. Actually, he's a former U.S. Marine who served in Iraq, and like a lot of uh, veterans battled PTSD and uh, alcoholism and a lot of really difficult things, but turned his life around and now goes on a lot of adventures himself. He just told me he's going to be heading to Liberia soon. Did you say running across Liberia?
1: running across Liberia among other things out there but we're going to be running a marathon or I'll be running a marathon a day for 10 days across the country
0: a marathon a day for 10 days
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that's that's awesome man yeah so excited to have you on the show and thank you for uh, taking your time you're in India right now it's just even cooler I'm in Costa Rica you're in India so this is a Love testament it. to technology absolutely you know, awesome. fun living in the future Uh, And for anyone that's watching, we're going to give away a free copy of the book to the best comments. So send in lots of questions. So if you want to ask me a question about nomadic travel and entrepreneurship, or you want to ask Akshay a question about anything that he brings up during the show, feel free to leave a comment. We'll choose the best one and then you'll get a copy of Akshay's book uh, as a prize. So yeah, send in the comments. So actually tell me a little bit about you. So I know that you're in the Marines and some of your story there, but Take us back a little bit further. What led you to getting into the Marines in the first place?
1: Yeah. So kind of what brought me to this whole concept of fear of honor and before joining the Marines, I was born here in India and moved to Singapore, and then Austin, Texas when I was 13. And soon after moving there, I got pretty heavily into drugs. I lost like two of my friends to drug addiction. I was easily headed down that path myself. I was the first one to go into hard drugs and just kind of in a bad way. For about a year and a half, that, that was my world. And actually watching the movie Black Hawk Down transformed my life. It was a trigger that led me to then reading book after book on the military, decided to join the Marines. It took me about a year and a half to get in because I have a flat feet. I have scoliosis. I have a blood disorder called thalassemia, where two doctors told me that boot camp would kill me. So I had to sort of fight my way into the Marines. But this was post 9-11, so eventually I got in, loved the Marines, thrived in the experience. That's when I started pursuing adventure and finding other ways to push my limits so before I went to Iraq, I went mountain climbing, rock climbing. I used to go free soloing with like no climbing with no rope, uh, scuba diving, cave diving. I mean, you name it, like outdoors really became my playground. And in 2007, I went to Iraq as an infantry non-commissioned officer. One of my jobs out there speaking about navigating fear was to walk in front of our vehicle convoys and look for improvised explosive devices before they could be used to blow up the vehicles. Mm. So somewhat dangerous. Yeah, it's
0: terrifying.
1: <laughs> but yeah. Uh, it was a great life experience, you know, like tremendous life experience that I absolutely loved. Uh, struggled with it for a little bit, but came, you know, ultimately had a great time out there. And Then when I came back, though, that's when I really, really struggled. I soon was late, later diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with alcohol in a really bad way. And eventually, after just this sort of pattern of drinking and sobering up, after five days of binge drinking, I woke up and thought to myself, there's no point going on. And that moment was a shocker to me. That's when I realized, like, like something's clearly not working. So... I started this path of researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, initially just to heal myself. And it kind of led me on something deeper and more meaningful, you know, because, of course, I'm not the only person in the world suffering. And that's what led me to this concept of fear of have that I've come, I come to believe and kind of validated by research is the path to living a blissful and meaningful life, you know, that – Fear is an access point to nirvana. I mean, that's what adventure and exploration is all about. You know, you push your limitations, you engage fear, you know all about it, man. You're traveling like a maniac and I love it. <laughs> that's what nirvana is all about. It took me three years to write the book and now the vision is to take nirvana to a whole another level.
0: That's awesome. You know, a few things topical in there. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, being suicidal at one point, which is it's, you know, everybody's talking about at the moment after we've lost uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. So I'm interested yeah. to hear your, uh, your opinion a little bit deeper on that. But do you kind of credit the military for saving your life in a way, you know, going from drug addiction, I'm assuming you had to clean up pretty quick to get into the military. Was it hard oh. to, to get out of the drug habit initially?
1: Drugs was actually like almost overnight. I mean, once right. I, I was so clear on this was my path now, like to join the Marines, because right after watching Black Hawk Down, I still remember like I read the, I went over to my friend's house. He had the book, read the book, black Hawk down and then read book after book after book on military combat. And it was like, okay, this is what I got to do. You know, go from this sort of selfish, meaningless existence to serving in in, in an institution where, I mean, again, separate from all the politics, but where you serve an institution where the good of the group matters more than the individual. And that's a beautiful thing, you know, In the Marines, it was all about the men and the mission. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So it definitely saved my life A transform. I mean, being a Marine to this day is so much a part of my, my being. It's who I am and always will be, you know?
0: Yeah. And you think it, you know, I was talking to this, a friend of mine today who comes from a military family in the States, brother in the military, dad in the military. And he yeah. um, you know, he was just naturally drawn towards that as well. And we were just talking about what what is it about the military that is so appealing to young men? Because I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people go in because they want to kill people. They're, they're more attracted to the camaraderie, maybe the physical challenges, that kind of thing, and maybe how we can replicate some of those things just in normal life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it was definitely the camaraderie, like serving again, where like in, the, in boot camp, for example, if one person screws up, everybody gets punished for it, you know? And uh, yeah. the camaraderie was a big one that, that pushing myself was huge, especially coming out of that world. I mean, because obviously in Marines, you go through a lot of challenging experiences. I know some people obviously join for patriotism as well. So multiple reasons, but yeah, it's never, you know, to kill somebody. I did want to, like, I mean, once I joined and came out of boot camp, I was volunteering to go to war every chance I could get, you know, go to Iraq and me and a buddy of mine were volunteering every chance we could get, but it was definitely about the camaraderie, about experiencing life in a different way. That's so out there, you know, like you were seven months in war zone in Iraq and you know, that life experience is, is amazing. That life experience is a game changer. You're teaching you about humanity, about yourself in such a deep, meaningful way that you can rarely replicate anywhere else.
0: Yeah, which I think is the, that's the shame, right? And that's why so many veterans struggle, plenty of different reasons, PTSD and stuff. But I think one of the reasons is they don't have that brilliant structure that the military provides once they leave. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, that's a great point too, because you don't often hear that, but like, yeah, one of the big things that comes out is the Marines, you know, like there's a very structured existence. You're kind of told what to do, you wake up, you don't have to almost, and I don't mean to say this in a bad way, we don't have to think what to do. And that's, that's a good thing. In fact, now I've replicated that in my life here, trying to create systems so I don't have to think. I just follow a system. When you come out of that, it's really hard to adjust. That's one reason for sure. I mean, others is you're spending seven months in this in this world where, again, separate from the politics, on the ground, you're doing something meaningful, Right? you have this brotherhood. There's always this kind of adrenaline high. And you come back to this world that's somewhat mundane. You don't have the camaraderie. Often you come back and you're working some maybe some shit job somewhere that's not exactly, you know, like... <laughs> doesn't have the kind of meaning that you had on the ground there and it's it's hard readjusting to this world you know i mean it took it, again it took me a little while to, to to readjust for sure by no means was it a smooth ride for me so it took me a little bit to get to this point for sure
0: yeah yeah that's right yeah and i can understand wanting to go to war i mean i, I have uh, my cousins in the the air force and oh, yeah. you know it's, the idea of just spending that whole time training to do something and then never actually putting it into practice is ridiculous. So I get that once you've learned to be a soldier, you ultimately want to go and try it out.
1: Yeah. It's like, I mean, cause you know, the, when I see, see the war movies and, and my experience of war before I went and even after gone, I think war reveals the best and the worst of humanity. You see people doing awful, awful things, these atrocities, but you see people jumping on grenades to save a fellow human being. You know, I have a friend. This was not when I went in Iraq, but before I went, a buddy of mine, he was employed differently. But he ran into like a burning home bee to try to save a fellow Marine, you know, like that kind of heroism, that kind of courage is tremendous. And I think it takes intense experiences. It doesn't have to just be war, of course, but it takes these intense experiences that reveal our character in such a different way. I mean, that's coming back to, the, again, to the theme of adventure and exploration. War is, in its own ways, an adventure. And I know that, I mean, I don't mean to downplay the horrors of war, of course, but it is. I mean, partly why, it's actually very addictive. There's actually, there's a great book called War is a Force that gives us meaning, talks about that, I mean, hence from the title as well, right? Like, it's a very addictive force. Yeah,
0: it's I mean, the hard thing to wrap your mind around, too, is that, like they always say, technology comes from the military. When we're under pressure in times of war, technology yeah. Rapidly improves. There's all these side benefits that's hard to rationalize because of so many downsides to war.
1: Yeah, there's of course the, you know, the horrors, the people that suffer, lives lost. I mean, I've lost a friend out there, lost a friend to suicide after the war, definitely struggles without a doubt. I mean, it's obviously awful for those that actually are in it without, I mean, like we were a soldier. There's those like in Iraq, they were sort of victims of it in the sense, you know, there was not just with us coming in, like with Saddam, the oppression there felt. I mean, I've seen people, I met one guy who was a prisoner of war in Iran for eight years because of the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, what that man must have been through, I can't even fathom, you know? Mm. So obviously it has its horrors for sure.
0: Yeah. So you come back and yeah, if you're comfortable talking about it, you know, just when you, when you got to that sort of lowest point uh, of, of thinking of taking your life, what was that like? What was the experience? I know a lot of people are thinking, now, you know, what was going through Anthony Bourdain's head that day? So can you try and give us a little bit of context? Is it a sense of hopelessness? Is it a sense of sadness? What is it?
1: Yeah, it was actually many years later that that happened. I'd come back. I went to my senior year of uh, college, finished college, which was really hard. I mean, going coming back to college after that was hard in its own way. I remember every party I would drink, I would be like, I just want to go back. I kept trying to volunteer to go back to Iraq, to go back to Afghanistan. It was hard readjusting to begin with. Then did my master's where I met my uh, wife now ex wife uh, out there and um, then came back and did a corporate job. And then years later, it was sort of been was struggling marriage a little bit and was died. That, that pushed me to the VA and was diagnosed with PTSD. And I'd always been drinking to this point, but I was like one of those functioning alcoholics in the sense of like, I wouldn't drink every day, wake up and drink. But when I did drink, I drank a lot. And it'd be like, you know, let's say you drink on a Friday. Then the Friday becomes a Saturday. Next thing you know, it's three days. Then it's four days. And it's, and when I say drinking, you're like hard drinking every day, like drink till you pass out, wake up, drink till you pass out and do this for four days on end. And so finally I got to a point, I remember it was like about five days of straight binge drinking and woke up and just thought this pattern wouldn't end. And I just like visualized myself going to the kitchen to pick up a knife and just like end it all. And obviously it's a, uh, I mean, to me, it was just shocking that I got to that point, that I would even like, that that thought would enter my head because I have this vision of who I want to be, of who I believe myself to be. What was that vision? Sorry, say again?
0: What was that vision? Like who did you believe yourself to be?
1: At that point I had already like, I I was still running, like I was still, I wasn't as obviously in the best shape because, but I was still in pretty damn good shape, like better than, not to be condescending, but better than most. I was still, I would still be able to go run a marathon. Like, you know, so I was still not like awful. Obviously now when you stop, you can improve radically. But I was still doing that. I still had a business going. I was still successful in whatever, however you want the the traditional definition of success. You know, Uh, I was still traveling with my wife at the time. We had pretty much a good marriage. Like in every way, things were good. So I was like, "That's who I am," and I and I wanted to keep improving in that. Like grow the business. uh, Eventually, get a family. uh, You know, uh, uh, want to do more adventures. Want to run harder. Travel the world. Do do kind of crazy things. I'd already at this point skied. I spent a month. Dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across Greenland. I've been to Himalayas twice, climbed Kilimanjaro. <laughs> I've done all these things right at this point that like it was like that's who I am, this person who can drag a hundred and ninety-pound sled across an ice cap in minus forty degrees for a month and and you know and, and do that. And yet here I am now at this depths of just the abyss. What the hell brought me there? How could I get to this point? You know? So, like, when, yeah, again, you come back, to talk to Anthony Bourdain, again, seemingly this amazing human being, like, great show, great perspective on life, just, and to, to, to get to such a dark place, like, it's it's awful, it's horrific, you know, and so it, it shocked me that I had gone from this version of myself to now, like, just the absolute abyss, and I, and actually, even after that, like, I mean, like, so I, I remember, like, stumbling up my stairs, just crashing, I was, like, too embarrassed to look at my wife at the time, because I just felt disgusted with myself, you know, and, uh. But it was like crazy. Like I talk about this in the book. Like the week later, I like plummeted back into the pit. It almost had to like. It was like that shock was hit me, and then I. It took me like a little bit to kind of you know shake myself out of it, and 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 then start the journey of healing because I was seeing a therapist, but I it was honestly useless. Often I would go to the therapist and drink more. So I, I, I kind of that's when I realized I gotta do. I gotta figure this out myself and like what's mm. going on, and that's what delved me into personal development work and into books and into like work with people like Jack Canfield, uh, you know, and a lot of that kind of work to heal myself and slowly climb back out, you know?
0: Yeah. It's interesting. What stands out for me there is the the kind of pernicious effect of the whole thing, that it just is a slow decline over a period of time to the point, you know, where you are no longer who you think you are. And I imagine that's very common with people in that position that, you know, they think of themselves as successful or a professional or a good husband or whatever. And then, they have the suicidal thoughts or dark thoughts like that and go, man, what happened? But it was a slow decline over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine for anybody, you know, who's like, like I said, I lost a friend to suicide after the war. So to finally, like, sort of do it, I mean, oh, man, to be in that space, it's awful.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really tragic. It the and even the, you know, the fact that you were seeing a therapist as well is even more bizarre. I think,
1: I think the, the playbook on therapy is very off. You know, I think the therapist that I was seeing had good intentions, but the, but they're operating from a very bad playbook that, and I mean, again, I'm not like, I don't have the three letters behind my name or whatever, you know, I'm not like a trained therapist, but I feel like I've read more than enough books and experienced it also to be able to (laughs) talk about it with some degree of expertise. So even if you like in the book, I have, there's so much research that went into it because Mm. that's, that's what led me to figuring this stuff out myself and then practicing it and putting it into play.
0: If you're uh, just tuning in, Akshay is just running us through uh, some of the challenges he went through returning from war. Akshay was in Iraq and came back from Iraq and then uh, sometime after experienced PTSD and depression and some points some suicidal thoughts before sort of turning his life around. If you've got any questions for Akshay, if you're watching, leave a comment. For the best comment, we've got a free copy of Akshay's book to give away. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, I know it's it's not always easy. It's a deep, deep topic and – yeah, it takes a lot of vulnerability to share that kind of thing. So I wouldn't thank be you for a that.
1: A little while ago. So it's gotten to a point now that I feel like there's by sharing, you can hopefully make a difference in somebody's life.
0: Yeah. I uh, Just to, to, to touch on what you said there too, I was listening to a podcast the other day that said that, you know, psychology and uh, more so psychiatry hasn't really had any big shifts in the last 30 years. A lot mm-hmm. of the research, a lot of uh, the way a psychiatrist will work is pretty much the same as they were doing in the 90s, and yeah. so we haven't had any profound shifts. Well, hence, you know, we're going backwards in terms of suicide statistics and everything, right?
1: Who don't think we're that it's skyrocketing and shocking, man?
0: Huh? Yeah, it is shocking. So, yeah, I think you know the likes of what you're doing and the book that you've written. I think it's it's overdue to look at some new ways of dealing with this stuff. And obviously, you did it successfully. There's just a question here from Tanner who said you know, looking at your life going from two extremes to from basically you know, being depressed and suicidal to creating this incredible life, writing a book and everything. Who, what and why inspired such a massive shift?
1: Who definitely, you know, lots of people in my life. I mentioned Jack Canfield, this author that you can see this Soul series. He was pivotal in my own transformation. I had amazing parents. Uh, my wife at the time was very supportive, you know, did have a supportive community. The, the thing was like, reaching out was my, my thing, you know, sometimes people don't know what you're going through. So you have to be conscious about reaching out. They're not going to know. It's easy to hide the drinking, man. Like I used to have my bottles in the corner, you know? So it's easy to hide all that from the world if you, if you, if you really want to. So who, yeah, just, you know, people around me. And then as far as the what and the why, the why was, yeah, it was shocking. And I think, I think, you know, this is what I talk about is that once you, once you leave this dark world, you can't just like leave a void. That void mm. needs to, Filled. I think. I mean, the, the the most important thing in life, the greatest gift that we can have, is what I call finding our worthy struggle. You can call it your path. I don't like to use the word "follow your passion" because that implies, like, often that it'll be this sunshine and rainbows life, but it certainly won't. I call your it your bliss. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, like I think that, like, like, a, yeah, I've heard. I mean, I just came to this seminar in Hawaii. Like, follow your bliss. Follow. I call it a worthy struggle. That's how I define kairvana. Is uh, the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle, so everybody has a worthy struggle. it could be running marathons, you know, hosting a podcast, traveling the way you do, man, which is awesome That's a struggle yeah <laughs> i mean I'd imagine man like moving like a nomadic life it 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 has its challenges, I have no doubt, so that that you know consuming myself in a worthy struggle was a game changer it sort of. Filled the void that was now left because I had friends again that I lost to, to addictions and to, to alcohol like when they get out they don't have anything to fill the void and ultimately it retreats back to the to the darkness to the demons you know so having that worthy struggle and immersing yourself on that I don't think I don't believe in like the idea of a work life balance I think stay obsessed with your worthy struggle let it consume you. I love talking about my work to my family, and I talk about my family and my and my personal life and my work, as you know, as, as you see. So I think they all coexist on this path that you embrace to your worthy struggle. And a big one also is just to touch on is not to. It's not about always being positive all the time. That 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 kind of really pisses me off because <laughs> people say, "Oh, just be positive, be happy." No, it's like, and I think it's far more valuable to actually embrace your demon, channel the negativity. We all have them. You don't want to ru- don't run away from it. In fact, bring it into you embrace it. Like my demons are the same reason why I run ultra marathons today. You know, they channeled into that. Do I have negative moments? Of course I do, but I'm not trying to just push them away to just be happy all the time. You know, it's, I bring it into me. And like, I think our demons and our divinity and everything like the quote unquote negative emotions, like in the positive, there are no positive and good. They're all just one. That's what makes us human. So embracing all of that allowed me to channel it into my worldly struggle and become who I am today. And I mean, then put it into my book and all of that. Writing the book was one of the hardest things I ever did, to be honest with you. That that was a worthy struggle for like three years. (laughs) So, uh, but it consumed me, but I'm glad it seems to be doing okay now and making a difference. So
0: what were you doing? So what were you doing for work? What was, you know, before you
1: sort of struggle? Ironically, I was uh, doing like one-on-one life coaching and I was, because again, I'd studied this stuff. I got, I got trained as, a, I got certified as a life coach by this organization that, you know, the great organization, ICF certified. And I was, you know, I was able to help others, but sometimes you don't uh, <laughs> apply it to your own life at the time. But, but then as I read more, it, was, it made a big difference in my coaching as well, because again, I was able to apply the stuff that I learned, stuff that I share in Pirvana into my coaching. So
0: yeah, that's, that's interesting. Was. And what do you say? What was your worthy struggle? What was the initial one?
1: So once I got out of that world, it was uh, because, see, I was in the personal development world at the time, too, right, like coaching. And I remember asking Jack Hanfield uh, again, who had a lot of work with, you know, who, had, who was transformational for me, what would you have done differently to go back in your career? He said he would have written his book sooner. Mm. And because I was in the personal development industry, that's what led me to writing, like, okay, I should write a book. And then it was like, what's the book? What, what would I write about? And I was initially thinking I should write a business book. But I wasn't like I wasn't an expert in that. I mean, I could have studied it and written about it. But I felt like I clearly had a tangible expertise in fear between all my life experience at this time uh, and navigating it. And I think that is the biggest barrier that stops people from going anywhere. It's the biggest barrier. And it's so wrongly approached that I was like, this is what I need to do. And how do I do it differently? And then my ex-wife coined the term fear of anna And as as, as soon as she said it, it was like, that's gold bought like 20 different domains that was like <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so it took a minute to write the book like it took about three years partly the research partly navigating my own stuff and writing the book it was very fairly cathartic because i share my own stories in there uh interviewing other people partly procrastination i used to go avoid writing by running a marathon and then and then be really tired for the day and justify by myself that oh well at least i ran the marathon but really it was kind of bs because and that's coming back to get to the worthy struggle is that was my worthy struggle at the time and sometimes i'd procrastinate but but like i knew that that was my worthy struggle and i had to focus on it and eventually like finally after editing and editing i mean i must have trashed like a 100,000 words worth of work and rewrote like almost the entire book because it took me so long so i evolved as a person uh, uh, by hmm. the end of it that i had to sort of rewrite the most of it and i mean in in some ways i i did i'm happy i did because the first version that i sent to my publisher looking back on it garbage garbage compared to what <laughs> what it is now now it's something i'm truly proud of so, uh, it, you know, you go through the journey and it is what it is.
0: Yeah, it's a hard uh, it's a hard thing to put the final stamp on a book, isn't it? Like, to, to say that this is it. This is, this is the final version yeah, that's exactly. going out.
1: I used to, like, I had to finally get to one where I stopped reading because I was like, every time I read a new book, it was like, oh, this kind of makes sense. And this yeah, is a good idea. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, stop reading any more books. You're good, you know. It's, there's a point where it's just, it just has to be. uh, you know, out there. I mean, you, I'm sure you can relate, right? Like doing what you do and putting a podcast and talking about being on Facebook live, like there's a point where it's not, nothing can be perfect, right?
0: Yeah. Well, look at this mess. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, no, the the podcast is interesting because you put it out every day, uh, sorry, every week. And it's like this, it's a a regular thing. And so do I feel like doing a podcast every week? Definitely not. Like there's weeks where I don't want to do this. Right. And so, yeah, that's the challenge because. I imagine like a book, you have to re yourself to, there's a reason I started. Yeah. There's a reason I wanted to write a book. There's a reason I started this podcast. And so I just re myself to that. And I challenged myself when I first did it to do 100 episodes. Wow. So that felt, uh, in a way, impossible. I read that the average number of podcasts on iTunes is 13 episodes. And that's yeah. kind of where it ends, Right. So episode 14 felt pretty good for me. Um, yeah, but what, what it does, and you know, I don't know if this uh, relates to anything you've written in the book, but it kind of forced me to find ways to keep it enjoyable, keep it interesting, find the passion because I already had this commitment to 100 episodes yeah. and yeah. You know, we're at 58 or something like that. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed finding new ways to, to re-energize it. And get, keep me interested in it and keep it exciting for the viewers.
1: I bet. Yeah, and totally right, man. Like, yeah, staying consistent, staying committed. is, is got to constantly find that why, stay present to that vision. I have, like, a goal journal that I keep with my vision and constantly looking at it, you know, because there's days I just don't feel like running, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You just, like, with, don't feel like doing a podcast, but when you stay present to that, you remember. I think I think often I realize, like, that. that's often the best time to do it is when you don't feel like it because when you overcome that barrier... Mm. That's when you like you rise above yourself to stay present to the commitment.
0: Yeah, there's a sense of control over the darker sides of yourself, or the more challenging yeah. parts of yourself that don't want to do anything.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was just watching. Uh, I actually shared it on Facebook. The interview between Russell Brand and Jordan Peterson. Very, very fascinating. You know, two very interesting people. And you know, Russell, somebody that got to the point almost suicidal was a heroin addict coke addict and they have a thing called the 27 club. I don't know if you're familiar with this where entertainers that have died or commit suicide or overdosed at 27, like Amy Winehouse and I think Avicii was 28 and then Kurt Cobain and that kind of thing. And so just talking about what got him because he was at that point at 27. And what Jordan was saying is you really have a choice at that point to either choose life or death. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because ultimately, Those people are living, they're controlled by their dark side. You know, whatever it is, the hedonism, the gluttony, the lust, all of those things, they're completely surrendered into it. And so at some point they have to choose, yeah, I'm going to surrender into these things all the way until the end, which, again, you can kind of relate, right, with the way you're drinking so heavily. You knew that that was probably going to have an impact at some point. And in some way, exactly what you went through, you choose life you know, you can either choose to go all the way or choose life, which means giving up usually things that you love, like alcohol or drugs and choosing something higher, choosing a higher purpose, what you call the worthy struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, choosing something that's actually going to pull you uh, forward and away from those darker parts. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think um, I'm just reading Man's Search for Meaning again. I've read it before. Uh, Have you read? Oh my God. Game changer, right? Like, and he talks about how you have to be worthy of your suffering. You know, like, a Dostoevsky, I think it's a quote from Dostoevsky that my greatest dread is that I'm not worthy of my suffering. And he talks about people in the concentration camp who would give their last piece of bread to somebody dying, like, to do that. I mean, I can't even fathom the courage, right? And re- reading that again, like, navigating that, I think that's what it is, that we have our demons, but how do we rise above them to be worthy of our suffering? And I think when you become worthy of your suffering, you tap into a space that's, um, I mean, it helps you rise above yourself in service to others as well. So when you focus on serving others too, it, it gives you some purpose and meaning. I mean, I'm sure you can relate with your podcast. I know that's what helped me finish my book as well, is that, okay, this can touch lives, and I got to stay present to that. I got to stay present to that, you know? So it yeah. made a big yeah, difference.
0: Yeah, I love to ask clients, you know, the question that if they're, unable to produce their work or if they're stalled for some reason, which we, you know, we all get like that at times. I'll say, uh, imagine the people that aren't benefiting right now. Like when you choose to give in to your fear and you don't share your book with the world, you don't share your blog with the world, you don't share your music with the world. Imagine the people that whose lives could have been shifted by reading or hearing or being with that that don't get that because you are stuck in fear.
1: Yeah. And you know,
0: making it about somebody else. Can be transformative
1: it's really big like they've actually shown studies that when you think about your goal from the perspective of how it can serve others it releases oxytocin which is sort of the quote-unquote love hormone and that helps you it doesn't help it doesn't eliminate the fear but it helps you push through it they've done all these studies that i that that are pretty powerful so it's it's important i think to stay present to that because it helps you uh yeah move through your fears in a powerful way yeah it really um, does
0: So um, let's talk about some adventures a little bit, because at some point you uh, obviously, like me, you saw the value in exploration of going after, you know, the unknown adventure. Mm -hmm. So talk to me like about some of the adventures that you went on and and why were they important to you?
1: Yeah, I've been. uh, uh, Yeah, it's been it's been plenty, man. I had some crazy stories. I've been uh, so right. In fact, right after Iraq, I came back. And right after that, literally a few weeks later, which is why I put my parents through just a nightmare because they came back from war. (laughs) And now I went to, I went climbing in the Himalayas for two weeks in Nepal. Then I came back from there and went climbing in the Indian Himalayas for a week. So in Nepal, we went to 21,000 feet. In India, about 14,000 plus feet. Then went to Israel, where my parents were living at the time. Did like 10 days in Israel. My four of my Marine buddies who were with me in Iraq came out there. And we did like this awesome thing. I was still obviously partying at the time, but like partying and then uh, and then doing sightseeing because Israel is such a beautiful place, so much history, so much to see there. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, I went and climbed Kilimanjaro in, in, in Africa, and it was this whirlwind adventure. Right after that, that was pretty cool. But even before that, I've been cave diving in Mexico. I've been. Uh, I'm trying to think of some like key stories. I've broken I've broken four bones in three months. From I fractured my ankle while rock climbing, and then I was in a boot cast for two months. And I was so frustrated with not being able to run and, and do stuff. This was up in, in college that I used to go to the rock gym and climb with one foot in the cast. Uh, mm. <laughs> I knew the owner. So he was like, "Dude, you're signing a liability waiver. I was like, sure, no problem. <laughs> and then I went <laughs> like, then I was in the boot cast for two months, healed for a month went skydiving. And on my ninth dive, I fractured three bones in my foot on a bad landing. Oh geez. <laughs> I had some wild experiences. And as I mentioned, I spent a month skiing across Greenland training for that. I had to drag tires around the streets of New Jersey and I needed fat to put on. I'm a pretty skinny dude naturally. So I was on a diet of like eating cheesecakes and cookies. to put on 17 uh-huh. pounds of fat because when you're out there, you're like skiing. You know, for, no matter how much you eat, you really can't put in that many calories is how much you're working for the day. So I put on about 17 pounds of fat and lost 20 pounds out there. Uh, so this, is, this is like
0: cross-country skiing?
1: Cross-country skiing while dragging. A, a, I think it started off as a, about 190-pound sled with 32 Jesus. days worth of foods and supplies to survive and obviously it gets lighter as you're eating every day. But it, it was a uh, it was one of those experiences that like amazing experience, but you definitely have moments when you're out there and you're just skiing into pure white nothingness every single day. I mean it's just like like some shifts you ski for an hour and then you stop eating and some shifts for like hour shifts would feel like an eternity. Look we'll at your watch and like ten minutes in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's crazy. So what, what motivated you to do that? Like was it is that a common thing people do? I never heard of that before.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 one of the three major ice caps. So it's common right. in sort of polar exploration world, like because there's there's Greenland, South Pole, and North Pole. Uh, at this point I had done a good bit of mountaineering. I've been mountaineering in Alaska, in Bolivia, in Himalayas, and so I wanted to explore new terrain. And I've heard polar exploration has a is a whole different level of suffering than mountaineering. So <laughs> I've experienced that. And, uh, it was kind of the training ground for South pole. Eventually I do want to still do the South pole and, and North pole, but, but, uh, Greenland is like the cheapest and shortest version of the three poles. And obviously it's a worthy expedition in its own right, but it's also a training ground for the, uh, for the others. So it was kind of like an, almost like a natural evolution. Okay. I've done all these things, you know, like you name it outdoor sports wise. And I was like, let me try something else. So Greenland kind of came up as the, is the next natural step (laughs) in the evolution. And it was ironic. In fact, I I signed up, I had a corporate job uh, before this, and I signed up for this corporate job knowing like exactly what day I would quit because I just finished my my, uh, master's and I kind of needed to like put food on the table and uh, and I was getting married to, you know, at the time and all that, so I had to impress my wife's family. And uh, so I had a decent corporate job, but I signed up for it and knew exactly what day I'd quit because I'd also signed up for Greenland.
0: Nice. Had something on the line.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Something salvation because that job sucked. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I I did Kilimanjaro as well about five years ago, something like that, six years ago. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, the wrong guy, wrong guy route, which is a very, not not a common one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the thing that I, well, I learned so much from that, but one thing that was, Incredible was the the final push to the summit. So we sort of slept for a few hours at about fifteen thousand feet. You know, at the I can't remember the name of the the sort of base camp there, and yeah, then yeah. got up at midnight and started climbing for the summit. The summit's uh, nineteen thousand three hundred feet, something like that. And uh, just I remember that climbing for eight hours through the night. You know, that last five thousand feet, and you know you probably remember what it's like to have that oxygen deprivation where and I, I thought it would be like suffocating, but it's not like that at all. You're just breathing normally, yet there's just not enough oxygen in the air, so you start to feel the physical effects of that. You get headaches. It's very difficult to do physical movement, you know, which is great when you're trying to climb a mountain.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I just uh, I remember being so at the end of myself physically, which I'm sure is a feeling you felt a thousand times more than me, right, coming from the military. But just that feeling of, like, I've got nothing left at all. I fell over a couple of times. Someone came and grabbed me and picked me up and kind of pushed me to keep going. And But just being so tired and exhausted and um, hypoxic. And then reaching the summit just as the sun came up, you know, a moment that I'll never forget. And just being so emotionally, I couldn't stop crying. And I am not a crier, actually. So I remember that feeling of, how good it felt to be absolutely at the end of myself physically so that I had no defenses left and I just sat there and cried like a baby you relate to any of that or was it just me <laughs> that's
1: the, that's the beauty right like when you I think that the level of pain you experience to accomplish a task I mean would you agree like that's why you had the emotion if it was a cakewalk for it, you probably wouldn't have that have had that emotional experience right
0: yeah, I had the same thing a couple of months ago. I did a half marathon, and just coming up in the last kilometer, just seeing all the people cheering and everything, and I just I left everything out there. I just put everything into it, and same thing. I just was crying, you know, as I was running through the, the gate. But it's that, yeah, it's that feeling of having nothing left yet, keeping going.
1: Yeah, it's it's. The, I think that's like that moment, you know, where when you're doing something and. And you rise above yourself to, to keep going. I mean, like in Greenland, the first day I started cramping up because the first few days are the hardest. Like you're going on these ice dunes. You're not on, you're not on skis. You're on crampons. And you're like going up and down these ice dunes. And, you, and your sled's are the heaviest. You're dragging it up. And when it comes down, you have to kind of watch it so your sled doesn't take out your ankles. And uh, and cramping up in the first day, I was like, "Shit, I'm cramping up on the first day." I got like a month left out here. This is gonna be this is gonna be brutal, you know. <laughs> so that experience, but but I can totally relate. Like, I mean, even in Barbados, for example, when I ran across Barbados, it was 28 miles. So you know, not huge, but a little bit more than a marathon. And I was I was kind of ready for the mileage, but I wasn't ready for the weather, and it just tore me up. And I remember getting like,
0: heat, uh, what was the weather?
1: It was. I mean, it was hot. It's humid. You know, you're on an island. Sort of Barb- hard to run in the heat. And I was struggling, man. Like at the end, I still don't kind of remember it. I was delirious. I was just kind of limping my way, but I was like, I had to finish. And I remember finishing getting full body heat cramps, which are just miserably painful. <laughs> miserably painful. Had like the 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 next step, which is not heat, ex- yeah, heat exhaustion. Heat stroke is the worst, one, but heat, heat exhaustion where I was just nauseous. Like after we got back to the hotel, I was I was sitting there like on the toilet, just nauseous and and just you know just cramping up just not ready to throw up and every way just feeling awful but when that all subsided it was so freaking rewarding it was like i suffered but i didn't quit you know i finished i reached in this sense the metaphorical summit and um uh, and that was beautiful it was beautiful that i rose above myself to to hit that to, to still finish so that was tremendous
0: yeah yeah and no, i think that's that's the benefit of it i mean it it to a lot of people listening that it's a turn off right you go man why would I ever want to put myself through that but yeah it's hard to explain isn't it it's a type of euphoria or a type of it's a sense of achievement that I've only experienced a few times in my life I went scuba diving recently I got a fear of the ocean and uh, it's kind of kept me on the top of it for (laughs) 30 years and so I decided to go under the ocean for the first time. And very similar thing, you know, even the moment I jumped into the water, I still felt a lot of fear. Like I wasn't yeah. paralyzed, I kind of worked through it, but it yeah. was a deep sense of, uh, of fear. And so once I was down there and, and got back up again, it's the same feeling, you know, it's, it's having a deep fear of something and then overcoming it. That's kind of what we're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So did you enjoy it after navigating it?
0: Loved it. I was so, uh, I was almost upset that I had so long that I hadn't, you know, so much that I'd missed out on all this, all this time. I hadn't done it, which felt a little bit disappointing, but yeah, incredible access to a whole new world. I
1: totally relate. I love scuba diving. I went cave diving in Mexico, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, that that was, I mean, so we, we trained for days with like double tanks. And then when you finally go into a cave, it's gnarly. Like, I mean, you're in the (laughs) Tight. I mean, you're going into these, you know, tight space, and in a cave, you can't just come up. So, like, yeah, I mean, a little bit more. And, but i It was so it scuba was, diving. Yeah,
0: scuba diving in a you, your cave. You're like dive. in an underwater cave.
1: Yeah,
0: it's wow. <laughs> terrifying. It
1: cave diving. I, I've heard cave diving and base jumping. They say are two of the most dangerous sports in the world. And in fact, oh god, my cave diving instructor had like recovered bodies in one of the caves we went in. Is often what happens in the cenotes in Mexico. People want to go see the, the caverns. Ca- so cavern diving is where you can still see light. Caves, okay. is when you're going in and you're basically, you know, you can't see light anymore. You're on a flat. Oh, that,
0: that's horrific.
1: <laughs> that's a nightmare. A, <laughs> but actually, well, I used to be very claustrophobic, and so I, I navigated that first in dry caves. But honestly, one of the worst, one of the more miserable experiences I had was was in a dry cave. We were in this cave in uh, upstate New York while I was in Syracuse. Call McPhail's, I believe that was it. Yeah, and you get to a point where you're you get you're crawling, and it was I think there's was this part of the cave called like the Bering Strait or something like that. And it's three sections where you're on your back, and like the top, the water line is here, and the top of the cave is here. Oh, so you got Jesus. this much room to breathe, and you're kind of like hustling your way forward. And obviously, one person has to go at a time because if somebody panics and they start splashing, you know, you can't breathe. Oh Jesus!
0: <laughs> you're making me sweating. My palms are sweating. <laughs>
1: it was pretty intense so we get to the second one and somebody started getting hypothermic so sort of the group leader was like okay let's turn around and like soon after turning around i got i don't know what happened i got diarrhea and getting diarrhea in a cave is not a very pleasant it's not pleasant anywhere but in a cave really miserable oh my god (laughs) you can't like in the cave you have to sort of just sort of environmental you can do it in (laughs) trash bags every time and you're like in the I mean so the cave was basically crawling through tight spaces and then going into open spaces. Tight spaces, open space. So now your stomach's all off and you have to crawl. Right? So, oh man. That and you and every time you're doing this, it's obviously draining physically. We had already been I think totally we were in the cave for like ten to twelve hours, something like that. So but there's no choice. You have to suck it up and get your you know, get out of the cave. And eventually when I got back home, I just was that ranks up there as one of the more miserable experiences of oh my, my life. Oh gosh. <laughs>
0: uh, feeling of achievement, though, still?
1: Honestly, in that one, um, <laughs> that one was just like, it was I, it was such a relief that I was, I mean, it's a good story now. And looking yeah. back on uh, looking back it, I'm glad it happened because now, like, that, I wouldn't be telling that story if I had not got Diary in the cave. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's like, oh, I went caving, and that's kind of cool. And, you know, yes, that story about going under the tight space was pretty intense and gnarly. But, like, now it's it's a real more interesting story you know and I think that's what life is like it's a that's what adventure is it's an it's a, it's accumulation of these stories that are sometimes miserable when you're in it there's joy in that misery and you learn to find joy in that misery that's why you seek it out again like I would easily go back into a cave you know I will I mean I, I haven't gone skydiving since I broke my foot not like I go after that I was deployed and then just you know hasn't come my way but I definitely want to go because I'm absolutely terrified now. I have that fear memory, right? Anchored of uh, breaking my foot diving. So I want to go back and uh, I'm, I will at some point, but it's like, those are the things, you know, you, you, you gain these stories from these adventures that, push you into different realms of yourself. And I think that's what makes life grand, you know, man,
0: it's, it's richness, right? Like yeah. we're so conditioned to be comfortable. Now it drives me crazy. You know, oh. Everybody, everybody <laughs> just wants to be comfortable and even traveling, you know, and I'm hundred percent guilty of this. It's so easy now, you know, like I know I can land in any country. I can turn on my phone. I can grab an Uber. I can put on Airbnb. I can find a place to stay. I can, Apple pay everywhere and <laughs> worry about running out of money. And so, yeah, even travel now, you know, you have to go pretty hard, pretty far to be uncomfortable with travel. I was in Liberia see- last year and that was uh that yeah, was, was trip.
1: So you still feel it though with the way you travel, right?
0: Well, I, I feel comfortable, but I try, you know, I'm aware of where I can push myself yeah, into, yeah. to discomfort, right? Yeah. And
1: yes.
0: yeah, it often involves situations where putting yourself, <laughs> one of my clients is is taking on this challenge of, you know, bringing more curiosity and adventure to his life. Uh, and he just told me that he's signed up to do a motorbike tour around Greece to wow. the really bad parts, you know, where a lot of the uh, refugees are living and, you know, little settlements and stuff like that. So he's going on this motorbike tour. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Where you go? Wow, who would I not normally hang out with? Where would I not normally go? What makes me uncomfortable? And putting yourself in those yeah. those kinds of situations because, like you said, it's tough at the time. It's horrible and it's uncomfortable, and all your usual defenses and all your usual um, tricks and tips don't work. And so that's where the growth comes from.
1: Absolutely. And ironically, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I read this book, uh, *Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience*. Have you read right? that one? No. It's a really good one. It was one of the key ones I actually use a lot in my research for Fear for Fear of Anna. He says, he did a study on happiness with thousands of people across the globe, multiple cultures, and he says, and I remember this quote directly, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person pushes their body and mind to their limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You know, so it actually is, it's even in like research on happiness sort of indicates that that's what makes us happy. And he does, he does later on say that often these experiences might not be pleasurable while you're in them, <laughs> but, um, but like, these are the best moments in our lives, you know, and, and seeking them out is what it's, what it's all about. And, and, and they're available to you everywhere. You don't often, like sometimes it's like, okay, you know, that you don't have to go to the Himalayas to, to, to find it. Like, I'll give you a small example. Yesterday I had a meeting, I'm here in Bangalore and I had a meeting in the, in the city So what I do now is anytime I have a meeting, I just tell everybody I'm going to come sweaty because I run to it. And running on the streets of India is not a pleasurable experience. It's a crazy, (laughs) like I was, I I would run against traffic and yet traffic would come up behind me, like, because they don't necessarily follow the lane discipline, you know? So, So like traffic would come up like right up behind me and I'm thinking like, I'm on the other side of the road, you know, I should be safe. And okay. Then I'm like, okay, I'm on the pavement. Let me get on the pavement. That should keep me safe. And a bike would come on the pavement, like almost right at me. So it's like this crazy adventure that's, but it's had, it's to be had everywhere, you know, you can kind of seek it out. And of course, I, don't get me wrong, I love traveling, but my point is though that like it is available to us in every way. Even right now, after this, I have another meeting in the city. I'm going to go run again, and I'm sure I'll have some other adventures on my running through the streets of India today, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's this idea, you know. it's a, I call this month adventure and excitement because excitement is the other part of it. Adventure is about exploration and pushing yourself and going into the unknown. At the end of the day, adventure means you know exploring the unknown, right? Excitement. It, Tim Ferriss has a great quote in the Four Hour Workweek where he says that when most people are searching for happiness, what they really mean is excitement, like to be out of the mundane, day-to-day, you know, drone of life, and Doing things like that, like, you know, going for a run and running to the office in Bangalore around traffic. It's fucking exciting, right? Like, it's just, I love the image of that. Yeah. How, how do you think of that? Like, when I say that about bringing more excitement, like, to your daily life, what does that bring up for you?
1: I think that's so true because, yeah, we sometimes think happiness is, like, pleasurable thing. But it's not true. I mean, pleasurable thing is, almost drives me to, like, alcohol, to, like, to, you know, like, ple- instant pleasure. I think instant gratification is mm-hmm. the, one of the greatest like demons that we all have to battle. And we live in a world of instant gratification, right? We get our little dopamine rushes on our phone. You can order something and get it in two days. You can watch a movie instantly. Like you said, like everything is instant. And that's the problem. I think that that's what we look, we think of happiness as this thing. And, and we live in a world that is constantly creating technology to make our lives easier. I think we should be making our lives tougher. Like struggle is a good thing. And that to me is, that's what makes life exciting. Like it's easy for, it's honestly easy for me to go run in a beautiful i I was in montana right before this running Mm. out there and then hawaii right before that and running in hawaii was gorgeous running in montana was i'm not saying like i'm not knocking that like i absolutely want to do a lot more of that but it's a lot harder running on the streets of india (laughs) and so experiencing it all you know like it, it it pushes you in different ways and and i think that's what it's that's what like gives you gives us joy gives us the experience of life you know and it's this grand adventure man like life is long and beautiful i think it's a There's so much to experience that we can, it's to be found everywhere.
0: Yeah. Not just in grand adventures. What are some of the adventures that uh, excite you like out in the future? Is there something where you think, I, I want to do that. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm up for it yet.
1: I have a monster bucket list that to me, it's like, I don't, I don't know or care if I'll do all of it, but I'm just kind of navigating one step at a time. Like eventually I do want to, uh, I would love to climb Everest. I'd love to climb an 8,000 meter peak in Pakistan in the Karakrams, which are a little bit more intense than the Nepalese Himalayas, uh, possibly even K2. I'd love to do the South Pole. I also am on this mission to run across every country in the world. So as I mentioned, I'm running across Liberia, I have some other big runs planned a little later in the year, like Huge runs that will involve months of, I mean, not in the year, a uh, few, few years down the road that will involve months of running. And there's, you know, so I, I want to go back skydiving. I would love to try base jumping at some point. <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. get back to the caves, like cave diving and push that to a different level. So it's like the list is monstrous that I don't know what all I'll get to. I'm just kind of focusing on one next adventure at a time. And uh, I mean, I actually do want, it's been a while since I've been in the mountains. So next year I'll probably do sort of a mountaineering refresher thing. And, uh, and, maybe return, I'd like to return back to the mountains at some point in the near future. So...
0: Have you ever heard of the Seven Summits? I'm sure you have. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. is that, a, yeah, is that yeah. A, on the bucket
1: list? On the list as well. <laughs> one of one of many <laughs> other things. On the, so I've done, again, Kilimanjaro is the only one I've done. Elbrus is the other sort of easy one, but I'd love to mm. do... Like, I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely want to go to Antarctica and at some point I'm sure I will, uh, whether it means Mount Vinson, which is the Antarctica Seven Summit and or steam the South Pole. I would mm. like to some version of uh, possibly either of those i'd be up for that
0: if you want to do that i'd do that with you
1: dude it's on we're staying locked in
0: i shouldn't have said that when it was live now it's locked in
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: climbing in particular what have you what have you learned from climbing climbing mountains
1: climbing's you know it's it's intense again the line of risk there it's you really have to figure out your own line of risk on, in the mountains. You know, there's the best mountaineers in the world who have recently died. Uli Steck, One of the leading mountaineers, you know, fell off. I think it was Lhotse. He was one of the, just the legends. And he used to free solo up mountains, you know, like by himself. So mm. you really got to like, I didn't, I never obviously have done anything intense like that, but I used to free solo up rock walls. So climbing rock, like maybe 70, 80 feet with no rope. And wow, obviously that's
0: scary.
1: The line of risk is, is high. Right. And, um, uh, and so you have to navigate where that, where that stands for you. So like mm. right now, you know, there mountaineering these days. People can sort of you can get, go up Everest and almost, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but like Sherpa set up everything for you. And you can kind of, if you have enough money and you train a little bit, you can pay your way. And it makes it easier that I know like a, elite mountaineers sort of look down on, but I don't want to take away from the guy who's worked his ass off and still climbed Everest. You know what I mean? So Like, you find your own line in there, but I think, like, I I love, I I miss climbing. Like, I haven't climbed, rock climbed or mountaineered in a long time. It's also just the mountains are probably my absolute place of peace. Right. I was in Montana running, and the runs out there, man, like, gorgeous out there, you know, just being in the mountains. So, I do love, I think it's a very spiritual experience, a very spiritual place to, uh, I mean, in all these experiences, especially when you're out in nature, like Greenland, you feel so connected to the earth in a deeper way. And I think us as human beings, we used to be able to like almost like animals, like sense natural disasters. And I think people in, like, in, if you watch, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, human planet. No. Have you heard of planet earth, the BBC planet earth? Yeah. Yeah. So the same guys made this documentary called human planet where it's like, unlike planet earth, they show human beings engaging with all these terrains. So like engaging with des- uh, desert mountains and rivers. It's awesome. You should definitely check it out. And um, mm. I think we could, and then they show like how we can, we can live with the terrain in a really beautiful way and, and engage it with it, and sense it with it. Like the oceans, when they show this guy staying negatively buoyant, walking on the ocean floor, like hunting fish, it's freaking awesome. And we could, we could do things like that. We can stay connected to the earth, but we've just lost that. And so I feel deeper connected when I'm in the mountains, when I'm in polar ice caps, when I'm in nature like that, you know, it's a, it's a very spiritual experience. One with our world. Yeah. What does that mean to you?
0: Spiritual experience?
1: <laughs> a, you know whenever somebody asks well, how it is what spiritual I mean it's always a hard question uh, to answer like what does spirituality really mean I think it's a sense of connection with ourselves with uh, with our fellow human beings with uh, with the earth mm. that's so much deeper than than you can kind of fathom in in the mundane like I mean I have recently had a lot of these experiences when I was again in Hawaii and Montana that pushes the realm of what you think is rationally um, Possible. It's like in Paulo Coelho's *The Alchemist*. He talks about following the omens. Have you read?
0: Yeah, it's my favorite book.
1: Super powerful, right? Like he talks yeah. about following the omens and seeing the omens. It's like I see. I personally, no right or wrong. But I personally don't believe in a higher power God. I think God is our own divinity within us, and I think that is our spirituality. Spirituality, like the spiritual experience, like when a guy jumps on a grenade to save his fellow human beings. That's our own God. That's God coming through us. You know. It's a a community coming together after a natural disaster to work together as one to rebuild. That's Mm -hmm. God in us. And these kind of experiences of humanity pushing itself to the boundaries of what's possible, I guess, tap into the the, the realm of spirituality. Um, Still navigating, but like, I mean, it's to be found in in meditation, you know? It's to be found uh, everywhere, just connecting with ourselves in such a deeper way and giving that space to that stillness because in today's world, we don't often give ourselves that space for stillness even now it's a, I stopped running with an iPod because I now practice a little bit more just staying connected to myself and that tends to be a little bit more spiritual it's a little hard
0: to yeah make. that's a that's a big one actually I've heard that i heard that a lot you know running we, we get used to running with music but yeah sometimes it's better to stay connected
1: yeah um, and you connect to your body so you, you feel all of you in a deeper way I think that's a very spiritual experience
0: yeah you're right actually we did an hour already yeah. <laughs>
1: That went by. <laughs> it really went
0: by. Uh at this point I would usually talk about your book, which is called Fearvana. And if you can just uh you know in thirty seconds or less, how did you get the Dalai Lama to write the the foreword <laughs> to the book?
1: That was a tremendous blessing. It was a cold pitch. I shot a video for uh I reached out to his office, it didn't get anywhere, so I found an I found an email contact through Google and just shot a video for them. He connected me to like three other people. I stayed healthy, persistent over like five months of building a relationship with this one particular monk at the office there. And, I, and I remember like, he sent me this email saying that considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. Wow. And when he said, press your case, this particular monk in the monastery. After five months of navigating plenty of self-doubt and stuff, I got this beautiful forward from his holiness. So I really just a cold pitch and shooting a video and coming from that place, I think if authenticity, you know, and and service, uh, uh and shoot, shooting the video. I think made a big difference, like really telling my story in like a three minute video. And it was a tremendous blessing. It's been a game changer. <laughs> so cool, yeah.
0: And just another example of adventure: cold pitching and cold calling.
1: This the Dalai Lama, right? Like, I mean, and that started Dalai just. With, I mean, at first in my mind, I was like, "There's no way that could happen." And I was like, oh, "Why not?" You know, that, why not? It's always a good question to ask. Why not try? Like, what's the worst that could happen? They say no, yeah. and I'm where I started.
0: <laughs> yeah, get blacklisted from the Dalai Lama.
1: <laughs> no big deal.
0: I mean, I assume should, I should he as a blacklist. Uh, who's the book for? So uh, again, it's called Fearvana. Who would you recommend read it?
1: I mean, ultimately, I guess everybody's navigating fear, stress, and anxiety at some point in their lives. And I put, mm. the term, put all three because neurologically they're very they're very similar. But obviously, it's it's for like a community. I wrote it for kind of a community within me: so entrepreneurs, athletes, you know, veterans, uh, world travelers, people who are who are sort of engaging it very proactively. Uh, on a more consistent basis, but I mean, I've had messages back from like you know students who have told me like this is like their new Bible because they're navigating fear and stress constantly. You know, uh, so students can and deal with it. I've I had uh, messages from like a yoga instructor, you know, kind of thing. So I hate to say it's for everybody, but uh, but those are the kind of the key audiences I was thinking about when I wrote it, it was like basically me, right, like entrepreneurs. Yeah. Entrepreneurs. Well, it time.
0: seems like a great book for the time now, you know, as we see depression, suicide, uh, prescription yes. drugs going through the roof. It seems like a great book to uh, help people deal with that kind of anxiety.
1: Hope so. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, man. So the final uh, question we ask everybody is about your dark side. And you touched on a little bit about the start, but what's your dark side now? And, and how do you embrace your dark side?
1: Uh, The dark side is definitely still that sort of that addiction that uh, I have to be careful of the desire to want to push the line so far that I don't know where it will go like like to like running running for example can be a way of running away from yourself so even the positive things like going to Greenland was at the time actually really looking back away from running away from myself so the dark side was looking for adventure to the point that waiting, almost waiting for it to kill me. I wanted to go back into conflict zones after Iraq as a journalist, you know? So yeah, trying to seek out adventure and pushing it until honestly it would kill me. And I navigate that by practicing stillness a lot more by meditating. One of the exercises I do just real quick is I learned this from an endurance cyclist friend of mine. I haven't done it in a little bit, but I'm getting back into it now. What he would do is he would sit still and stare into a wall, no TV, no music, no painting, not even like no stimuli and just do that. He would do it, I think, for up to 24 hours and then go biking for 24 hours. I haven't gotten to that point. That's a little too much. I'd probably lose my mind. But the point of doing that is when you're still, you force your, you, allow your mind to go where it goes. And that helps me navigate my demons and tap into them. So I'm not just running away all the time or running to my eventual death.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I
0: think there's a, there's a time for running away. I think you know, there's a negative context, doesn't it? But there's a time for getting away from it all
1: i would agree too yeah i think that i think the duality of it all can be embraced that that's why like that's why i was saying earlier like our demons can coexist with our divinity you know we talk about god and our divinity i think they can coexist as one it's not like one or the other Uh, i i embrace my demons i still have them they like i said i show up the negativity the desire to just push too far whether it be like drinking whether it be just go do something crazy to the point that eventually it'll kill me but that demons uh is there and i allow it to be present Balance it with my divinity. It's the same Beautiful thing. Answer. Running away and being with ourselves is can coexist.
0: Well, three hundred base jumps, they say, is the average when when the person dies.
1: Is that so, right? Okay. You know,
0: yeah. At two hundred and ninety eight base jumps, you know, when you eventually get into it. Give it a call it a, a day. Then it's done. Yeah. it's yeah. <laughs> done. Exactly. Actually, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. love talking to you. I could keep talking for hours about this. I love adventuring and exploration. But uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for inspiring us, motivating us. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. And thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your comments. It's uh, a real pleasure to have you guys here. So uh, I'll be back next week with the next episode of The Nathan Seward Show. That was the Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.